Well, how are you doing this morning? Excited to be continuing the sermon series we began last week, uh, where we are slow walking our way through the book of Galatians, and as we see today, uh, maybe slower than even I anticipated, how fast we'll go through this book. Um, last week, we began by looking intently at verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul was stating his authority as an apostle, not based on man or because he was sent by a man, but because he was sent by God himself. We said last week that authority uh, as a Christian, as a believer, is found and located in Jesus, uh, you know, through the Scriptures rightly handled. And today, what we want to begin to do today is to focus on and ask ourselves the question, what was the gospel that Paul preached? What was the gospel that he preached? Because we see through this book that Paul is very upset that people were coming in from the outside to distort that gospel. But just as in the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, in their fraud department in the FBI, when they want to teach and train people in order to recognize counterfeits, they don't spend all of their time, and I know you probably heard this illustration, they don't spend all of their time studying counterfeits. They spend their time studying the real thing. So that is what we're going to be doing this week and, Lord willing, next, as we're asking the question, what is the gospel that Paul preached? And so our reading this morning uh, will begin again at verse 1, but today we'll be reading through verse 7. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there or at home, and uh, if you're able or willing, I invite you to stand as we read the Scriptures together. We stand in honor of the Word of God and its reading. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. Please be seated. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be present here with us now. Holy Spirit, we pray you be present in our hearts as our teacher to teach us the true nature of the gospel that we might be on guard against false ones. But, Lord, help us to know the real thing, and that not just to know the real thing, but to live in the full reality of the true gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before we dive into the nature of Paul's gospel, I want to begin with a question, a question the Apostle Paul asks, however, not in Galatians, in the book of Romans. But this question will help frame for us our continued understanding of the importance of the gospel. And that question is this, taken from Romans 3, will man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And the answer that the Apostle Paul brings is, by no means. 
So let's try this together. I'll ask the question. You provide me with the answer. Will man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? By no means. We're going to ask that question in an ongoing way this morning because the gospel is the proclamation that man's unfaithfulness will not nullify God's faithfulness. So to see the gospel that Paul preached, we're going to go back to our text in Galatians, and we're going to focus on verse 3. Here the apostle says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And so today we want to focus on this phrase, who gave himself for our sins, as an expression of the gospel. Now, is that an accurate assumption? Because in the book of Galatians, Paul does not explicitly say this is the gospel that he preached. So maybe this isn't the best place to start. However, one thing that we can do is turn to other places in Scripture where Paul does explicitly say what he means by the gospel. One of those places is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach. So he's going to say, here's what it is, right? He's explicitly stating it. He says, that which I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So we are on solid gospel ground when we proclaim that Christ died for our sins. But what we want to do this morning is ask the question, what does that mean? And what does it mean when Paul says that that's according to the Scriptures? What did Paul as a first century Jew mean? when he proclaimed the forgiveness of sins, and what would it have been like for a first century person to receive that? How would they have interpreted that proclamation? Now, typically, when I hear people uh, explain what that means, and, and me too, and what I'm about to say is not wrong, is it's usually explained in this way, that in the beginning, God created the world and image-bearing human beings, specifically Adam and Eve, and he entered into partnership with Adam and Eve. We might say he entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve, and that Adam and Eve would, under the rulership of God, exercise dominion over the world, the, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that creeps along the ground, and that together they would fill, you know, the, the Adam and Eve would fill the earth in partnership with God with other image-bearing human beings. However, Adam and Eve decided they didn't want to do that, that they didn't want to be in partnership with God. They'd rather do it themselves in their own way, what we call sin. And therefore, God banished them out of the Garden of Eden, and they were separated from the intimacy of relationship that they enjoyed in the beginning. However, praise be to God, Jesus comes. Jesus pays the penalty for our sins, and therefore we're restored to relationship with God once again. Does that sound familiar? And that, is that wrong? No, no, it's not wrong. It's not wrong, in case you were wondering. However, that explanation, which isn't wrong, of what Paul would mean by the forgiveness of sins skips over about two-thirds of your Bible. Does that matter? 
You know, it's like saying, okay, in the beginning was this, Adam and Eve, and then it's like skip, 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 skip. I mean, we're skipping a lot. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of the Word of God are being skipped. So what I'd like to do today, and I'm not saying, again, that way of doing it is wrong. I'm just saying it skips a lot. To go back into the Scriptures, because Paul says this is according to the Scriptures, and ask, what did it mean to proclaim the forgiveness of sins? And we are going to begin our story this morning, not with Adam and Eve, not because that's wrong, but to begin our story with the nation of Israel in the Exodus is where we're going to start, the Exodus. And I'm assuming a lot of people understand what the Exodus is, but just in case, the Exodus is the nation of Israel, the people of God, became a mighty nation in Egypt. However, there were pharaohs that rose up that subjected the people of God in Egypt to bondage, and they became slaves and were mistreated. And so the people of God cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, it says that God saw the bondage of his people and remembered his partnership, remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so was moved to deliver his people, which he does with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from Pharaoh and the bondage in Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea closes to destroy God's and the people's enemies, and then the people come into the wilderness, and they go to the holy mountain, which is Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God enters into a partnership with the nation, what we call a covenant. A covenant is a partnership between God and the nation of Israel. And there's a lot that could be said about that partnership. I'm only going to mention one thing about it. This partnership where it was where God made certain promises to the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel made promises that they would fulfill certain obligations to obey the Lord. Now, within that understanding or within that partnership and covenant, if the people obeyed God, then they would experience the blessings of that partnership. They're called covenant blessings. Now, if the people did not follow the Lord, did they not listen to the voice of God, if they followed idols and worshiped other gods, then they would not be living to the obligations of their partnership with God. And so instead of living and experiencing the blessings of that partnership, they would experience what are called the curses of that partnership, called covenant curses. And this is laid out very explicitly in the book of Exodus, and again in the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, what does Deuteronomy mean? Second law, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, second law. It's the place where Moses delivers his kind of swan song, farewell address to the nation of Israel just before they go into the promised land, the cross over the Jordan. Where's the first place they go? Jericho, right? So it's just, just prior to that. And Moses is reminding the people of this partnership they have with God. And he outlines for them these blessings and these curses. It's found in Deuteronomy starting in 27 through 29 and into 30. Now, these curses, I'm going to outline the curses because that's why we're talking about is forgiveness of sins. These curses have kind of a, a, an escalating function. They get worse. The curses get worse. If you don't do it, then this. If you don't do it, then this. If you don't do it, then this. And the reason why is because the curses in this relationship with God, this partnership, 
are not like God being nasty. He's not like Zeus up in the clouds, like he can't wait to throw his thunderbolts at people, right? And that's not his relationship with you either. The purpose of the covenant curses is to draw the people back into right relationship again. Think about how if you have children, how you discipline your child. Right, when you discipline a child and the child's not doing what you want, you say, hey, you know, stop doing that. And then what happens if the child doesn't stop? You say, I said stop. You say it again, maybe you raise your voice, maybe you talk a little faster. What happens if the child still doesn't stop? You get up out of your chair and you start moving towards them. I said stop. What if they don't stop then? It just escalates, right? Okay, I don't know where it goes, but. <laughs> Things don't go well. But now, God is a loving father, right? So it, it's, it's uh, but the point is, is that the discipline escalates because the people continually disobey, so God says it's going to get worse. It's gonna, but my purpose is to draw you back. Now, what happens if the people of Israel never stop? There is an end point to this. And the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus says there's an end point to this. What's the end point? Here's the end point. You will be uprooted from the land that you are entering to possess, and the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. This is the end point. You push me far enough, you push me. If, this, if you push this partnership far enough and you continually disobey and disobey and disobey and disobey and disobey, eventually I'm going to say, okay, it's it. Everybody out of the pool, go home. I mean, that's it. And even in the book of Deuteronomy, and the people are going to go, well, when this happens, and it's interesting that Moses says, when this happens, you're going to ask a question, Israel. You're going to ask this question. How did this happen? How, how, how come this happened? Moses says explicitly, here's why it happened. Because the people abandoned their partnership with God. People abandoned that covenant. They continually disobeyed. This partnership, this covenant that he made with them as they brought them out of Egypt. Now, Moses says, not if, but when. But here's our question again. Will man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? By no means. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, if you want to write a chapter down to look at, Deuteronomy 30 is a good chapter to know in your Bible. Because in Deuteronomy 30, God makes a very important promise. A promise that you're going to see reiterated through the Bible. He says, when you're scattered among the nations, because I know what's going to happen. I know you can't keep this partnership. I know you're going to break it. I'm going to scatter you. But when that happens, I will bring you back. And when I bring you back, what will I do? He says this, I will make you more prosperous and numerous than before, before your ancestors, and the Lord will circumcise your hearts. Because the Bible recognizes that the problem with humanity is a heart problem. It's a heart problem. And then you will love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. But first the Lord must circumcise your hearts. So here's something about the gospel. Can you circumcise your own heart? Can you replace your own heart, which is a heart of stone with a heart of flesh? Can you do that yourself? Only God can do this. The gospel is the proclamation that God is going to do something. Your sin is going to put you in a place where you're separated from me, but God must intervene. The gospel is the proclamation God will intervene. Now, what happens in the nation of Israel as things go forward? So they enter into this partnership. They go into the promised land. 
under Joshua. And as they're taking it over, they transition into this period called the Judges, where God would raise up certain leaders out of different tribes who would lead the people for periods of time. The last one is Samuel. Samuel, a good judge or bad judge? He's good. He's real good. Did the people like his sons? No. They said, we, don't, we like you. We don't like your sons, so figure out something else. We want a king. Now, is God happy that they want a king? No. Why? Because we want a king like the nations. We want to be like everybody else. God says, okay. Gives them King Saul. King Saul doesn't go so well. So then next is King David, a man after God's own heart, who has some issues, but, uh, you know, is still after a man over God's own heart. Next comes King Solomon, all under United Kingdom. Who's the last king under United Kingdom? Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So Solomon's son comes to the throne, and the people of God gather to meet with King Rehoboam, and they tell him, your dad was like Pharaoh to us. He put us under harsh bondage. Are you going to treat us like your dad or not? And Rehoboam had to kind of figure that out. Am I going to treat these people like my dad or not? And he got some advice that wasn't so great. And he came back and said, you thought my dad was bad. You ain't seen nothing yet till you see me. And the people said, okay, that's it. Ten tribes go up north. Then you have the tribes in the south, and you have two kingdoms. Now, through all this, the people of God are in partnership with God. And remember, the, the promise was, if you continually disobey, you continually disobey, eventually I'm going to kick you out. Now, in the north, how do things go, bad or good? How bad? Real bad. And so, God fulfills his promises. He says, look, we have this partnership. You'll continually disobey. I send you the prophets. They're trying to draw you back. I bring punishments. Nothing's working. So finally, boom, Assyria comes down. Everybody out of the pool. You got to go away. Now, the southern kingdom still exists, yes? Now, are they good or bad? The more mixed, right? It's mostly bad, but there's a little more mixed. There's a few good kings every once in a while get mixed in, which is good. So they last a little bit longer. But they continually disobey, they continually disobey, they continually disobey. And so God finally says, that's it for you too. You're out of the pool as well. And Babylon comes in and then begins the period of what's called the exile. It's where God's people are scattered among the nations. And why did it happen? Because of their sins. Daniel says this. Daniel is in Babylon serving the king of Babylon, and he begins to pray. And here's what he says in verse 9 about why they are there. He says, Israel has transgressed your law, their sins, and they've turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses, remember when we talked about this partnership, I would put money on that Daniel had Deuteronomy in front of him, reading Deuteronomy. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses the servants of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned. And if you sin, what do you need? Forgiveness. But here's our question again. Will man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? By no means. And God promises that he is going to bring them back. Now, we saw that promise in Deuteronomy 30, but that promise in Deuteronomy 30 is picked up again by Jeremiah. Because what had happened is, is this partnership with God was broken. 
Here's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31, very important chapter in your Bible. Deuteronomy 30, write that down. Jeremiah 31, write it down. Here's what Jeremiah says. He says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new partnership. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them out by the hand out of the land of Egypt that we talked about earlier. Why? Because they broke it, though I was their husband. For this is the partnership. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their what? Hearts. This is the issue. It's what God had promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 30. I will circumcise their hearts because the law is not written there, but I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Why? What happens to happen first? For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So in order for this new covenant to come about, which the other one was broken because of sin, what they need is forgiveness, And once they receive forgiveness, then God will bring about a new covenant in which God will circumcise their hearts and write the law on their hearts. And we won't look today, but if you look in Ezekiel 36, he'll also pour out the Holy Spirit. But in order for the new covenant to come, it must come with the forgiveness of sins. Now we move forward to the ministry of Jesus, which we can see is a ministry of covenant renewal. Now, the ministry of Jesus is many things, but I would suggest part of what Jesus was doing, if not a major part of what He was doing, was renewing the covenant which had been broken. And Jesus actually explicitly states this. Do you remember where? Where does Jesus say explicitly, I am here to renew the covenant? In the night He was betrayed at the Last Supper. At the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper, the first thing Jesus does is he takes the bread, he breaks it, he says, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you, given for you, right? And so that's exactly what Paul says, is that I'm sent by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. It's the language that Jesus picks up, that Paul picks up from the Last Supper. He gave himself. This is my body, which is given for you. And then he picks up the cup, and here's what he says. Drink from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for what? The forgiveness of sins. What do you think? I I know we're kind of guessing here, but I think this is a very, very highly likely thing. What do you think Jesus was drawing from in his words here, from the Scriptures? Jeremiah 31. This is the blood of the covenant. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he says the covenant. If you look in Luke's gospel, he says it's the blood of the new covenant. If you look in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is restoring the covenant, which was broken, to bring a new covenant, but must come first, according to Jeremiah, before you have the new covenant, you must have the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus 
gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, thus establishing the new covenant. That in the ministry of Jesus, specifically in his death, as he gives his life, he pours out his blood, that establishes the new covenant. And what comes with the new covenant? A new heart. What else comes with the new covenant? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What else comes with the new covenant? New temple and other things. All of these blessings are fulfilled in Jesus who establishes the new covenant. Now, why is this important? Is this sort of an esoteric Bible study? Why is this important? Sometime this week, I, as, we, as we close, sometime this week, I want to invite you to read the book of Galatians in one sitting. It's not that long. It's about six, it is not about six chapters. It is six chapters. It takes you about 15, 12, 15 minutes to read it. And you know that, you read it pretty slow. What is Paul's problem? The gospel is the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has died on the cross in payment for the sins of the people, but thus by his blood establishing the new covenant with all the blessings that come from the new covenant. And the new covenant is for Israel that is also extended out to where? The nations, which is why Romans 11 talks about the branch with the unnatural branches grafted in. But these Judaizers coming in from the outside, are they pointing towards the new covenant? What are they pointing towards? The old covenant. That's why Paul's so upset. You're denying the death of Christ. If Christ, he died to establish the new covenant, and you're pointing back towards the old, it's broken. It's like people nowadays trying to reinstall eight-track players in their car. What's the point? We have these new things, right? They hold like a billion songs. Why are you trying to put that eight-track in there? What's wrong with you? But as we end today, I just want to end again with this thought. Will man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? By no means. God has done, the gospel is a proclamation, God has done what you cannot. The nation of Israel showed us that man cannot meet the obligations of this partnership. But you know who can? And you know who did? Jesus Christ. He has established the new covenant, and we are in him by faith. And then we, as he took on all the covenant curses on the cross, we live in the fullness of the covenant blessings. As we are united to him by the Holy Spirit by faith, he has done what we cannot. And praise God that your unfaithfulness and mine will not and does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is not from man, nor can it be, because our hearts are dead. They are spiritually stoned. We're like thorn bushes, which cannot produce figs. And so, Lord, we need the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the new covenant. We need our hearts to be circumcised. And, Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who has not yet placed their faith in Christ, that they would grasp the cross for the forgiveness of sins, because Jesus 
has given his body broken. And he has shed his blood, the blood that he said was the blood of the new covenant. And the gospel is the proclamation that the new covenant has come. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.